It's gonna be scary. Not for us. All engine running. Lift off. on Thompson steps right, shoots for the win of three. He got it. He got it. Same my first rodeo. To the basket, turns Schroeder around. Russell Westbrook. House the three and the lead. You betcha. Covington biggest shot of the game and he hits it. The corner. P.J. Tucker. Time to you know, accomplish something together that we haven't accomplished before. We both understand that we have one common goal, and that's to win a championship. So <laughs> let's get it. What is up, and welcome to another episode of Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Today's episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. As always, I am your host, Jackson Gatlin. You can catch me on The Bird at JT Gatlin. And of course, our show is also on the Twitter at Locked on Rockets. And if you appreciate what we do here at Locked on Rockets, do me a huge favor. Hit the subscribe button, drop a review, leave us some stars, and share the podcast on social media. I would sincerely appreciate it. Continuing our conversation with Ernest Silva of the Into the Lab podcast. So, Ernest, we want to wrap up the this advanced stat discussion. So let's go ahead and continue this and continue breaking down some of these statistics. So the first thing on this list as we continue this discussion is on-off rating. So let's talk about that one a little bit. When it comes to the on and off rating, uh, we're, we really try to look at when a player, um, his impact at the team level and the team statistics, when they're on the court, off the court, um, that's, that's a huge part and piece of a coach's analytics. So um, it won't be something that Daryl Morey or a GM that you're familiar with will really dissect too much because based off of what the system the coach will have, they can't analyze an on-off court rating until about the midway point. So when we're looking at, I, I personally call it, the, the all-star break stat, because when we're, when we're looking at those big trades and we're looking at, at what impacts a team, those are really when you see, I don't want to use the word cancerous, but maybe those players that didn't mesh with the system like you thought they would. And you can kind of get those players sold based on name or those players um, given their track record to another, to another team to maybe produce in their unit. Um, And so when you take the on off percentages, it's, it's almost the same as you're looking at PER um, or player efficiency rating but you're really looking at some of those stats um, on the offensive end, like points, assists, um, even PER in general uh, would be something you look at as well as on the defensive end, you're looking at steals, blocks, um, and, and, uh, and how those, how those numbers reflect the player when they're on the court and how the team produces when they're off the court. And if they generally have a a positive or negative effect, and that's when you make those decisions um, to go a different direction or not. And I like to, I think you're right too with that on off rating. I think that's one that you definitely have to take with a grain of salt because, you know, in one of the, in one of the arguments, especially with Rockets fans a lot, right, is we have gone back time and time again and critiqued over and over endlessly game six and game seven against the Warriors back in 17, 18. And we look at game six and seven and you think, oh, well, you know, maybe if we hadn't played Joe Johnson the minutes that he played, or maybe if you tried playing Luke Mbamute just a little bit more, even though he had the bum shoulder. And people like to point to the fact that Luke had, I, I was it, like a plus seven or plus 12 in like four minutes played of that first quarter in like game six. But that, that part could, honestly, if you go back and look at it, like he didn't attempt any shots. Like, he, you know, he, it's, he had the plus 12, yes, but you can have a good, 
you know, plus minus in, in a given game or even in a given quarter, just because the rest of your team is doing so well, right? It's not necessarily an individual statistic, right? That is correct, which causes controversy because it, here, here he comes again, Ryan Anderson, same game, game seven, um, his, his first half um, on off rating was, was above a 10, uh, which means when he's on the court, you're 10 points better. And it wasn't necessarily him doing the work because we all know we cringed if he shot that three because he was just so cold. But the team was clicking with his spacing. And, and so they continued to play him in the third quarter, which is when Golden State made their run. Um, and that, and that, that it really makes you cringe as an analytics person because you think, okay, yeah, they're doing it. They're following the, the cue. Obviously, Mike D'Antoni is listening to his numbers guy on the bench with him. He's going to go, go forth with it. But it got to a point to where you, um, there's that eye test kind of thing coming out. He's not playable right now. You need to take him off the court. And it took too long. And so um, I think some things could have gone differently in that game. Um, and we're going we're gonna to talk about the game a little bit. But um, I, I, that, that's one. That's definitely one example. I think another good example, let's go positive here. Um, 2000, correct me if I'm wrong, 2015 Western semis. I think I have the year right. Um, when we, when uh, Kevin McHale sat James Harden in quarter three and the Houston Rockets made a run with Josh Smith and Dwight Howard on the correct, front floor yeah. in LA. Um, that, that was a, a monumental win for um, analytics because when Josh Smith and Dwight Howard were on the floor, they were, uh, I think, a plus 23 at one point. And you just, you just roll with your best lineup with what you have, and you wish a coach would do that. Um, now, could it have been Kevin just thought that's the, we had the best chemistry on the court? Maybe. But when it came to the analytics side, if you look at it, uh, when Harden was off the floor for that game, um, or when Harden was on the floor of that game, they were a minus seven. When he was off, it was, it was like a monstrous plus 23. So he ran with it and, and they closed that game and, and did probably one of the, the biggest Houston Rockets wins um, in postseason um, history. I wouldn't say it's the biggest, but one of the biggest that you can remember. I mean, that, that was part of the, one of the best three, one comebacks in history for sure. And that Absolutely. kind of, like, kind of uh, pays homage to what you were talking about in the part one that we just recorded, which was the, the chemistry being more than just personalities meshing, right? His, his right. personnel on the court were meshing better in that game between, you know, Josh Smith and Dwight Howard and just that lineup that they had out there, Corey Brewer, uh, uh, Terrence Jones, who was a part of the initial run, you know, at the end of the third quarter, just that group of guys had, you know, they, they, they hit something else and they were meshing beyond a certain point where you were just, all right, well, we're just going to ride the hot hand and see what happens. Josh Smith hitting from the floor from three and showing the consistency from being able to hit out there and stretch the floor is exactly why players like Chris Bosh, Ryan Anderson, Kevin Love keeps coming up with the Houston Rockets. Because when you pair a shooting big that can stay outside but also perform rebounds offensively at a small level but defensively as well, um, those, are, those are unicorns. Those are what you want in your stats. And, and so um, that, that's why you continue to hear about those players because they just – the spacing – um, around the court and hopefully not a liability on defense, but their ability to play both ends should, should is what propels you to be a contender in the league. Absolutely. And that's why they've committed to doing the, the five out lineup now. Um, yes. <laughs> so with that, uh, our next stat on the list, I've got wind shares. So wind shares is definitely one that I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit rusty with. So I, this one's going to help me out a lot too. So let's break that one down. Right. So wind shares are basically, um, you, we talk about having weights to to the actual stats, um, but depending on how much usage a player has on their team impacts their 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 part towards a win share. So um, let me not confuse anybody. So when you're talking offense, you use a weight of 0.92, and when you're talking defense, you use a, a weight of 1.08. And you're taking all of the offensive stats that you have, how much usage 
that they have on the court. Um, and when I say usage, it's when you have the ball in your hands, not how much playing time you get. So only when you have the ball in your hand and you, and you, um, and you calculate those together. So you're multiplying those stats together at the weight of 0.92, and that gives you your team win share percentage. So as you can imagine, um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm sure James Harden is just astronomical. Um, just thinking in my head if I remember what it was. Um, I think well, so. He's got a point. So for this past season, James has a eleven point five win share. Yeah, it should be way up there. Ten, 10 is like ten is like legendary all star level. So we're talking about a win share. Somebody who has win share. He is the team at ten. Is basically what I'm saying. So when you have an eleven point five, he is the team at that point. So that, that is your focal point. And and you say it's based on usage rating. And mm-hmm. so my question here is, you know, James is a guy. Obviously, his usage rating thirty six point four for this past season with the eleven point five win shares. Russell Westbrook is right behind him at thirty four point four, and yet his win shares are down at four point three. So how do you interpret those numbers? So when you're when you're looking at at, uh, at at what they bring to the table, the offensive output when James Harden is on the floor, has the ball in his hand, part of the play, all of that is taken into consideration. I I've, I don't have it in front of me, but I bet you Clint Capella is probably up there too. Is he like at number two or number four? Clint was actually just at a five, which uh, if I let's sort this by win share, yeah. So Clint was the second highest win share on the team okay. until his departure. So that that would make Russ probably third. But you'll have a player like PJ Tucker who also set screens for on the ball handlers be be up there in the top five as well. When you're involved in the play and win shares, offensively is all I'm talking about right now at this point. Offensively, ball in your hand, you're part of the play, you're inside of the system your number tends to go up because that weighted average. So as it weights out, the, you get, you get those, those, um, those weighted averages. On the defensive side, um, it's how much time you spend on the ball. Deflections are considered, blocks are considered, steals are considered. Every little stat you can keep track of on the defensive side, which is why James Harden and Russell Westbrook will have higher numbers usually, Clint Capella because of all of his blocks. Because so basically they, all the tracking stats, right? Basically, everything that has to tipping the ball on defense is where you'll get your defensive uh, win shares, which is why you still see James and Russ and Clint up there because they're the ones touching the ball the most. They're the ones going to the passing lanes. Chris Paul would have a high defensive win share. Yeah, and a quick reminder for those listening that James Harden it does lead the league, or not, not lead the league, but he is up there in the, in the top five, I believe, in deflections and steals pretty much Correct. consistently every year and has been for the last about three or four years now. So, you know, exactly. and while, while deflections and steals do not translate directly to necessarily being a quote-unquote good defender, they are, they are still important mm-hmm. stats. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, we do have two more of these stats that we want to hit on, but first, I have a quick message from all of us here at Locked On. Quick word from our friends over at rockauto.com. Look, chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, which that doesn't sound fair, right? Rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody, and they are reliably low. Rockauto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. Rockauto.com is for everybody and doesn't require a membership or account login or like a monthly subscription. They have everything from engine control modules to brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even brand new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or or your daily driver, you can get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why would you want to spend twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And be sure to write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. 
rockauto.com. And we are back in here at Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, continuing our breakdown of advanced stats. So the next one we have here on our list, Ernest, is BPM. Yep, so box plus minus is is a fun one. I uh, This is a lot of controversy because not a lot of people like BPM. They think a lot of people spend way too much time looking at at your block your box plus minus score. Um, but really, you're, you're looking at the, uh, the average over time of your team. Um, how do I explain this easy? So it, it, everything's always back to stats, right? So offensive production, defensive production, the main stats you always use. Um, and do you make your team on the court that much better? And how many points better is where you see your plus minus. At the end of the game, though, and when you look at it over the course of the season, you'll see a player has a plus minus for the season. And that's where it gets a little technical. So during the game, you're looking at, am I making my team better? Am I plus five points better? Am I plus seven points better? Am I minus two points better? Um, and this, this is important because it, in, it, it basically shows an average over the course of the season um, where, where you stand with your team and how you fit the system. So on a GM perspective, um, if I take a player like Trevor Ariza, who had plus minuses, you know, all those years, and, and I, I'm Dara Mori and I have to either pay the man or replace him, I need to have a player that has that same plus minus that fits my system. And so um, when you say I can just plug PJ Tucker in, or I can try to go bring in, uh, you know, and throw a flyer on Mark Michael Carter Williams and try to put him at small forward because he had a similar plus minus in Daryl's eyes in that in that position with those stats, then then th- that's the that's you can look at it in that perspective and, and kind of match it. But it kind of give you a means. What does he mean? Okay, what do the numbers mean? So so plus five means you're five points better than the average player. Um, in their roster. So if you see plus five, plus six, plus seven, and in a season term, when you see that on a player, that's how much better they are. If you see minus two on a player in a box plus minus, then that, that's, a, that's a bench player that's replaceable. That's a bench player that has had production, but it's not somebody that you, you it's, a, it's a staple point of your team. And then obviously, if you're minus five, um, you're probably either a rookie or a second year player developing, or you just had a really bad year and you're at the bottom of the bench. And so you, you won't see those players play too much except for maybe garbage time. Um, but when you're looking at a roster for season plus minuses, that's what, that's, that's really what those mean. So to kind of put some uh, context behind those numbers for, with a rockets lens, James Harden this past season had a 9.0 BPM. Jeff Green currently has a 3.9 BPM, but has not played many (laughs) games with the Rockets. Russell Westbrook with a 1.8 BPM. Then you've got other guys like Daniel House Jr. who's sitting at a negative 0.5. Then a little bit further down the list, Ben McLemore, negative 0.7. And then all the way down at the bottom, as you mentioned, just a player who is either a rookie or just has had a really bad campaign, Eric Gordon with a minus 3.6 for this past season. I chalk that up to injuries, though, and lack of playing time. Absolutely, so when, yeah. When you, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I would definitely not say Eric Gordon's going to be somebody you get rid of. But obviously, uh, minus five is where that is garbage time, or you don't look at it. So minus two to three point five, you're probably in the you're a bench player. But obviously, we can get we can look at you at, at, at replacing you for the same production. So if Eric Gordon and uh, I just pulled up the list, so Austin Rivers, um, two names down there, and even even PJ Tucker right now. Um, in the current system that they're playing. And if you were just to use BPM, you would say in an article, if you wrote an article for any pieces, these are three players I think the Rockets may trade in the offseason. 
and, and you, so, you'd be able to back that up. Is, is, so is, is there numbers in this system when you're looking at BPM? Do you think that's a, an after effect of the way that the rocket system is constructed? Just the fact that so much of the time, so much of the focus is on James Harden and Russell Westbrook or like w- would their numbers be similar in another system? Do you think? This is where you have to understand the type of system Mike D'Antoni runs and the fact that he only plays seven or eight deep on a given night if it's a contending team or if it's a garbage team, or I shouldn't say garbage team, don't be disrespectful. You're playing a team that isn't trying to contend this year, then you might be playing 10, 11 deep and they might get their minutes. Um, But for like players like Eric Gordon, um, players like PJ Tucker, or, or let me just use Eric Gordon, numbers and amount of time on the ball is probably his own doing with the injuries. Not that he can control that, but his ability to crack the rotation, get heavy minutes because of those injuries. But for players like Austin Rivers, PJ Tucker, who have set roles in the rotation for PJ in the starting lineup, it's mainly because they're used on defense more than they're used as offensive productive players. So PJ has a ton of those those um, intangible stats that we do not measure right now with uh, defensive pressure with uh, amount of time on the ball, off the ball, guarding one, two, three star players. And that's not really that's anything that's put into these, these advanced stats that we're talking about today. Whereas on Austin Rivers' problem is that it is so James Harden, Russell Westbrook heavy. He is a second, third option at all times to be in a ball, ball handler and in his position as a point guard listed ball handler has those high metrics and standards and that's why his rating is so low so basically what your bpm is saying is that i could plug in a chris clemens into austin rivers's spot and get the same type of production with that bpm and and that's what the stat that's what the numbers say and then i think that that's going to probably lend some credence to a discussion a little bit further down the line we're going to have about you know do we argue and you know arguing eye test versus numbers because i think anybody could could look at the fact and say no you can't plug in chris clemens and get the same production from austin rivers but the numbers say you can but that's not actually going to happen because they are two completely different players and provide two completely different skill sets when they're out there on the court however the numbers would beg to differ so that's correct that's something we'll get to in a second but let's let's hit this last stat uh vorp or uh value over replacement player Yep. So value over replacement payer, player is the is the fun time where you get to add in some of those weighted things like playing time, or you can prorate it at per 100 possessions, uh, since that's what the average is in a basketball game. And you can kind of break down into an 82 game season or to every 48 minutes. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to just scroll over here because I don't want to call myself a liar, but I'm pretty sure James and Rush should be one into – yeah, it is. But James is going to be heavy. Um, James James Harden controls the stats. Like like we said earlier, King James, he, he just king, he's the king of the stats. It's We go find a different team. Giannis is going to be the same way with the Bucks. He's going to be leading in all stats for the Bucs um, if you compare the two teams um, between the Rockets and the Bucks. But Russ and James obviously are going to have the highest warp. But that's where you start adding in some of those extra intangible aspects of, of what of, of what add on to uh, – a player's offensive efficiency. So you take the PER we've already talked about, you take the BPM, you take some of the efficiency ratings, and then you add in the playing times with it. Um, some of those, some of those ratings, and then you, you average those together to see what their, what their ranking is. And and that's where VORP comes into play. Um, now, when you're, when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about this number, this is the true one I think Daryl uses when looking at how can I make the team better now because when we were looking at who the Rockets could target, Jeff Green was high on VORP, uh, or his VORP number was high in how he would fit the Rockets system. And then I threw an outside shot that players like Bruno Caboclo um, uh, or 
obviously Tabo Cephalosha just because of ties to, to Russ and James, but his numbers were up there for the type of playing style we had. Uh, when I say we, I mean the Houston Rockets, obviously. Um, but but I, I put those names out there and people said I was crazy. Um, but that's just because the, the, the way they would fit the system really, really – I took it from this number and from offensive and defensive efficiency. And, um, and, it, and some of those came true. Some of the outside ones I had were absolutely, they, yeah, they were completely wrong, but these three in particular from the off season to the season, they came true. And, and that's why they're on the roster today. So as we've kind of completed our, our little mini crash course in advanced stats, you know, I want to get to the, the, the big question is do analytics take the fun out of sports? Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. You, you just listened for nothing. No, uh, the, the analytics, they, they can take the fun out of sports if you're sitting down and just looking at numbers and letting your spreadsheets go and letting, uh, you know, different, different programs just do the work and, and just looking as, as one-twos and one-twos. Um, that could get boring. But I, I really think that sports analytics should be the foundation of every front office. Your coach should have a philosophy on the type of players they want to play and then fit that to what a front office can do for you statistically to match those players into the roster. So if you have a running gun system like D'Antoni wants, you go five spread and you don't care about the big men. And you say, we're going to go all out on making teams spread the floor and match us. I think that's a great, I think it's a great style that Houston has. Boston Celtics have a similar style. They want to run and gun. They want to stay young. They want to stay on the outside and they got shooting bigs that they, they run the similar style. They, they just, they're going to run with their big men because they think they need them in the playoffs because of that, uh, that the stigma that you can't win without a big. So, um, and there, that's one of those stigmas that I, you know, it, it's perpetuated by a lot of the old heads. You know, you think to inside the NBA and Shaq and Charles, and then I think back to C web trashing the Rockets for an entire 48 minutes when they first <laughs> unveiled small ball yeah. in the debut of Robert Covington against the Lakers, just for the first 12, 14 minutes, C web, every other sentence, uh, sentence was, you know, I don't know how you can win without a center. It's not going to happen. And I just, I got sick and tired. So I had to mute him, you know, stop listening to him, <laughs> but you know, but it's also perpetuated by players even. Cause I, I like to, think back to the conversation that Kevin Durant had on Twitter with Matt Moore of the Action Network HQ and that Twitter exchange that he had where they were discussing advanced stats and kind of what the numbers mean and and Matt pulled out a graph that basically said you know Kevin Durant he was talking to Kevin he was like Kevin you're allowed to shoot whatever shot you want because you shoot over 50 percent from from the floor so your numbers do translate positively as far as advanced stats are concerned you know and he's trying to make the argument that other players shouldn't shoot those shots and then Kevin Durant comes back with some I, I'm pretty sure there was some foul language in there basically like saying who wants who the hell wants to look at graphs when we're talking hoops and so that's something that's perpetuated by actual players you know and so I wonder which players are more you know more open to the idea of analytics James Harden obviously is you know we're playing for the Houston Rockets for as many years as he has alongside Daryl Morey as his general manager he's had to accept the analytics movement and I think it has made him a better player and this is a discussion that we'll get into a little bit later on but has he has he has he molded his game too much after the analytics movement is I think something we're going to tackle in a little bit. Well, I think the, I think the first off, before I go into that, Kevin Durant, it, it shouldn't really speak too much on it because he is a six ten man who shoots from beyond the arc constantly and likes to shoot the outside shot. Whereas usually if you talk about a six ten individual, they're down low, they're making the moves down low and they're, they're in the paint. But he's, he's just an example of how bigs continue to make their game further out. Nikola Jokic as well. Um, another player who uh, is a stat, a stat stud 
Um, that's a new term. I've never said that before, but stat stud, that would be somebody that would, you know, really, really uh, is an anal analytics fiend. But um, I like what you said about the big men always trying to defend the old way. It's so true. For some reason, it seems like people who have a height disadvantage or guards love to defend analytics and the rest of them want to say, no, it's all about how you play the game and you're taking the fun of the game. Um, but, you know, let me kind of give some history here. All right. The dream shake. That was Hakeem Olajuwon's iconic move that is that is the that you know his signature move but that's the move he could make consistently and make people look silly and analytically every time he used that move it was a dream come true they literally call it the dream shake because the dream come true because he was going to make the basket same thing with kobe bryant's fadeaway same thing with tim duncan's bank shot same thing same thing with uh with, with a lot of players who have signature moves those are the moves in which you analytically can, in real time, are, stayed, are stating, when I shoot this shot, I have the best chance to score points. And all that Daryl Morey and the Toronto Raptors um, with, uh, uh, I don't want to mispronounce the name, Ujri, um, and, and, and many other analytical minds, they go in there thinking, you know, I'm putting on paper, here are your best shots. And, and when Daryl broke down James's, shot chart he said look here are your best areas to shoot let's mold your game to it um but let me be honest with you here are the areas around the three-point line you shoot best let's make this your bread and butter and and yes maybe maybe this extreme analytics strategy that mike d'antoni and darren Morey have created are gonna are, are too extreme i ha i'm not there yet in my mind but for a lot of people they're way past it maybe it's too extreme but to exploit something so great for so long when it goes away, what is your go-to after that? And I think we're going to talk about in a second. Um, what's your go-to after that? Um, I don't know if, if – I think the Rockets figured it out with Chris Paul. It's can they do it with Russell Westbrook. And, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second. But that's – yeah, so when you're talking about our analytics kind of going away, technically on the floor – the players constantly know where their shot is at. When you're playing basketball, you know, okay, I'm going to set up in this corner, or I'm going to sit at the elbow, or I'm going to I'm going to hover around eight feet because I can't shoot worth the darn outside. You know where your where your where your where your spots are at. That's the same thing just on paper. Yeah, and we'll absolutely. In fact, I, let's we'll go ahead and talk about that upcoming here in just one second after a quick word from our friends over at Built Bar. So ever since I started talking about Built Bars, I basically have been eating one to two bars a day. And honestly, it's been so impactful because I'm, so I'm what you would call skinny fat, right? Like I am a super tall, lanky, skinny dude, and I eat, you know, pretty terribly most of the time. You know, I'm trying to be better about it. And these Built Bars have kind of helped with that because sometimes I'm, you know, I'm on the go, I'm running out the door, running late for work, or, you know, not even running late for work, just, you know, jam-packed day, you know, eight to 10 hour work schedule. And then I got to come home and show prep or do stuff like that. And these Built Bars are great when I'm running behind and I still need to, you know, get my, get my nutrients, get my protein. You know, they've got 16 amazing flavors. They've got eight chocolate and nut flavors, eight chocolate and nut free flavors. The bars are covered in hundred percent chocolate. And here's the thing. They're soft and they're easy to chew, right? They're not like other protein bars that are gritty or chalky. They're not like that. They're great for the health conscious guy. And whether you're trying to lose or maintain weight, either option, they can help you with that. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber. And you can try them if you go to builtbar.com and use promo code locked on and you'll get $10 off your first order. So use promo code locked on for $10 off at builtbar.com. 
And we are back in here for our final segment at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, chatting with Ernest Silva of the Into the Lab podcast. And as we're about to go down this rabbit hole of, you know, kind of critiquing James Harden's play and whether or not he, you know, is potentially maybe too brainwashed by the Daryl Morey style of, <laughs> of basketball, of analytics ball. Here, here is the, the argument, and the, I think this, this also will fold naturally into our eye test versus numbers argument as well, is that I, I feel like there's a lot of hoops heads out there, not even, and I'm not even talking just the old heads you know, on inside the NBA with Shaq and Charles and whatnot. I'm talking just a lot of hoops fans in general, even younger hoops fans, that you know, they look at how James Harden plays the game of basketball and they think, okay, well, if he were to plug in a little bit of mid-range, he would be less predictable. And I think, and I've made this argument too, that this is a testament to James Harden's greatness and how incredible he is as a player that because, even though he doesn't incorporate any mid-range into his game anymore, he's had, he's had the floater a little bit, but that doesn't really count because he, you know, by the time he puts up his floater, you know, he's basically already in the lane. So I don't count that as, as any form of mid-range. But you look at the types of shots that he constantly has to take, the, the way that he's constantly contested or semi-contested on these step backs, and you'd have to wonder, it, it might make his life a little bit easier if a defender didn't know that he was either going to settle for the step back or try to take the ball all the way to the rim. Because there's a whole area of the court that he just chooses to ignore. And we saw this in the series against the Spurs, where they decided to shrink the floor and they would you know, either push him out to the three-point line or drop their bigs down low in the paint, knowing that he was going to look to go the entire way and not settle for that mid-range shot. So had he looked to incorporate that a little bit, that series may have, you know, wound up finishing a little bit differently. And then you look at guys like Kevin Durant, like Kawhi Leonard, who do incorporate the mid-range into their game. You know, it's not, it's not a, you know, it's not the staple part of their game, but they do incorporate it. And so I just wonder what that would look like for James Harden. I have a theory about James Harden um, that many may not agree with, but I, I, I think, I, obviously I'm not going to solve world hunger or anything with it, but there is a time and place for James Harden to take mid range shots. And I do believe it is in the final five minutes of each half. Uh, and here's why the Rockets are a pace team. They, they are, I think they're third in the league now in pace um, at least with those remaining. And, and they, they like to push a ball up and down the floor when they're the half court, half court offense, they love to shoot the three. Um, but we've seen what happens when the Rockets get too heavy with the three pointer or get too heavy with trying to draw fouls. They don't win um, or they can't close games in the final five minutes of, of, of a half their teams are basically teams. Well, I mean, in any part of the game, they're double teaming James Harden, but whenever they decide to play one-on-one against James Harden, they're baiting the Rockets to shoot three pointers because they know that's the lowest percentage shot you can take on a court. But for the Rockets, three beats two. Um, and, and James legs by the end of those halves, they're, they're pretty much, they're pretty much at, at the halfway point for the amount of durability they have. So if James were to step up two, three feet in those final five minutes, take the jump shot mid range, there's plenty of game winners. There are a lot of, there are a lot of high effective shots he's made in regular season and postseason play. There's a game winner against golden state top of my mind. He hit in 2000, 2016, yes, 2016. Um, and, 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 you know, I, you know, the other one that comes to mind is the fadeaway in Phoenix, but there are many shots he's made where they've just been clutch moments for James Harden at the mid range. And I think if he goes back to those, you don't have to use as much leg when you're, when you're shooting the mid range at that point, if you can get them up in a pump fake, I don't, I hardly see James use the pump fake anymore. I know the step back, uh, the, his signature move, 
um, the Texas two-step some people call. <laughs> I, I like that. But the, the Texas two-step he does, you know, I love that move. But sometimes a pump fake, that's what Ginobili's bread and butter was. He'd get people in the air so quick. Um, I don't think he uses that enough in the clutch. I think he's, he's a little too predictable at that end. Um, but, but you know, he's the best one-on-one -on -one player we've ever seen. Um, I mean, for me, and I, the numbers I'm, back that up. So, and the numbers back that up, and so, and so, um, you got a guy like that. He should be able to expand his whole game. And what, and what you do when you start creating? Uh, yes, you lose space when he gets into the mid range because you're compacting the area, which is what the analytics people say. You know, analytic, sports analytics area. You can't compact the middle. That's what the, the Rockets are not trying to do. But if he draws the big man off, then you got a guy wide open, only within six to eight feet of the basket. And, he, and him, of all people, could get the ball there. And if he doesn't, he takes the mid-range. And you live and die by that mid-range. And, and I think you can say, I'd rather live and die by the mid-range in clutch time than the three being contested any day of the week if you're a Rockets fan. So maybe, just maybe, they're going to work on that. And if it's not James, it's Russ. Because Chris Paul was good about doing that. Yes, we, we re-witnessed history when we saw Chris Paul making three-pointers at a high rate. Because nobody had ever seen that in his career. And we started seeing it at a high level. And then all of a sudden in the playoffs, he had the mid-range that went with it. And in some clutch games when he finished off teams, that was a big factor as to why those Rockets could not finish off that Golden State Warrior team. The best Rockets team um, arguably assembled. Uh, I think the best team to never win a championship with those 18 Rockets. So, um, yeah, that, that's what my – my uh my predictive model would say you know and i think that so that lends some credence to some of the other arguments that i've heard both for and uh, you know against it is just you know even recently i had matt bullard on the show and we discussed you know the whole james the the whole argument of james harden and not taking mid-range and and matt agreed he said you know yes three is greater than two yes you're getting more points per possession on a three than you would a two-pointer and you'd have to shoot you know x percentage to get the same number of the same value out of a two-point shot but he did agree he said in crunch time you know those are shots that should be taken it is you should be open to the idea of of taking a mid-range shot and so i think that's something that hopefully the organization will take into account just because you know, you, you look at, you just look at the degree of difficulty on some of the threes that James takes. And, and like you said, I think a good argument there is, you know, within the, first, the the last five minutes or so of a half, you know, your legs start to go, especially the, the, by the end of a game, especially, you know, those last five minutes, it's so much easier to hit a contested 15 footer than a contested, you know, 24 footer after, you know, executing a beautiful step back or something, because you got to right. put that much more leg into the shot. And so it, this is why I think Rockets fans are so ravenous for wanting to see a slightly different, you know, a slightly different approach from James, maybe near the end of games. But I, I think we've kind of hammered out everything we can from that little rabbit hole. So I want to kind of get back to our analytics discussion and just mm -hmm. kind of focus on, you know, what are some of the downsides to analytics? You know, we've talked about how you can use these different stats and, and you know, the arguments that you can make with them. But what are some of the downsides to them? So there's, there's some downsides on the defensive end, and that, that's really the main focus I want to put on it because players like P.J. Tucker, Patrick Beverly, they don't get enough love on, in the analytics world because you don't really have a number to what they bring. Um, I would even argue Russell Westbrook to an extent because you can't really gauge energy 
you don't, you don't really have like, it's not like 2k, right? We can't see all oh, their energy is down 20 points. So we need to change them out because their percentages are going down. Yeah. We don't have, we don't have that gauge or, or we would always think James Harden's at a 20 because he constantly plays. So we always have to think we have to take him out, but no, that guy is, that guy's always playing. So Dude, James uh, Harden's right trigger is always down. No, no, no. You know what? I take that back. His right trigger isn't always down. Russ's right trigger is always down. Yes. Yeah. Russ's right trigger is broken. It just stays down. <laughs> James, James turns it on and off. It, it just kind of depends on which side of the it's, floor. But, it's but, selective it, for James. Yes, yes. But when you, when you uh, play that defensive intensity with that left trigger, right, with Patrick Beverly and PJ and Trevor and different players, Luke, Mabam, Luke Mabamute and Robert Covington, I mean, my goodness, the defensive trigger and Robert Covington, um, you, you don't gauge those, right? You don't have that stat. Um, and so that energy wear down, um, that's not calculated. So – um, although you do account for um, fatigue over the course of the season, it's hard to measure that. And with these long runs the Rockets go on, where James Harden is at with his usage percentage, it's hard to measure that. Um, and I don't think we get enough of that on the analytics side. So it can skew you. It can skew what, how effective your team should be against another team um, and, and what that productivity is. And I think um, we're, we're, we are still learning as a whole – because analytics have been around in baseball for, you know, almost two decades long prominently. Um, but in basketball, we're, we're hitting the decade point um, where analytics is prevalent. And we're still learning how those analytics expand to a seven-game series. And I think those are the downsides for teams like the Rockets, what was the Raptors until Kawhi lifted them up. Um, uh, for, for the teams like the Celtics, uh, those stats where we're looking at seven game series, how they run down those numbers, how, how that can wither away energy and the defensive pressure and different things we could start adding and trying to figure out how we can add to it. Those are, those are, are the downsides analytics that can blind you. Um, because players like Ryan Anderson or players like, uh, gosh, who's, who's another one, uh, Fred Van Fleet, those numbers will, will get you. So Jeremy Lin, even for the Rockets days. Um, you know, going all in on Jeremy Lin. Th- those, those numbers for when he had that output, if you put him into a point guard system, then he should flourish. Uh, you know, being able to, um, being able to, to really share those. We, we lack some of those still. We're still learning as a whole. And, you know, I think that's a good thing to think about too is the fact that it is the, the analytics movement in the NBA is rather young, you know, so there's, there's much more room to grow and there's a lot more learning to be done before, you know, th- this is not said and done. This is not final. It, it's constantly changing. And I think you kind of, so I think you kind of hit on it there a little bit at the beginning, but you know, one of the other things I wanted to discuss is the fact that uh, defense is kind of a, a hard thing to quantify with numbers. And we spoke about it a little bit earlier, talking about some players who, you know, they talking about the intangible guys, right? The, the PJ Tuckers, the Trevor Ariza's, the Luke and Bob Mute's, Robert Covington's of the world who, you know, not everything they do on the court shows up on a stat sheet or is even, you know, a trackable stat. So, you know, as far as analytics go, you know, is there a movement or are there, you know, things in the works to try and have some more advanced defensive stats to be able to weigh those players properly and their output on a court? So there's, there's a couple on the defensive side, and there's, there's a couple with chemistry. So let me talk about the two defensive ones that I've, I've heard going around. So one of them is, is, is uh, defensive intensity, and it's, it's a rating that you get for how many feet you keep between you and a defender over the course of the game. And that's supposed to measure the defensive intensity you have on the court. It's also supposed to measure, be a key component of how they measure fatigue for a player. Um, and so that's something that's currently being 
being worked on and, and, and the ability to track it. Another one on the defensive end is going to be the gauge of guarding a superstar, all-star, or rotation player and, 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 ha and putting a figure to that number and using a weight to average it out and then using that towards a d defensive efficiency. Um, with those being put into play, that would make defensive efficiency a little bit more of, of an argument as to why it, why it's so important and why that number makes sense for players. Um, because you'll see players and, and because we're talking to a Rockets fan base, you'll see James Harden sagging off the ball by four or five feet because he wants to go trap or go for the steal. You'll see players uh, like uh, Clint Capella or like Robert Covington who are constantly have a body on them and getting beat up down low. And so if you can see that, you know, James Harden's off, you know, defensive intensity is a 4.5, which the higher, the worse it is. And Robert Covington's is 0.2. Then you would see that defensive intensity is way different between the two and, and what that would, what that would make sense. The other two are a little bit more of the mental aspect. So there's supposed to be a crowd volume metric coming out for how loud the fans are when that player is on the court compared to when they're not. Oh, really? That's interesting. I, I am not sure how exactly it wouldn't be attributed to. I'm guessing it might be just a rotation thing where those players get credit for the volume in the, in the stadium. But players like Russ, Dame, um, you know, LeBron James, even James Harden, the players who have that impact of the crowds and how that plays an impact into the playoffs. I think that's an interesting metric because how loud you can get the fans in the stands, uh, you know, may, may take that into consideration if you're going to be a rotation piece, if you get, if you can have the high enough numbers for everything else. Dude, taco I think, fall. I mean, like, think, exactly, about, how, think yeah. about how, I think about how loud the garden gets exactly, <laughs> when taco yeah. falls trying to check into the game. Exactly. Or, or I, I know I just said him a little while ago. I don't know why he stuck in my head, but Jeremy Lynn, the Jeremy Lynn effect of, of what he had in Houston and, and his run in New York, it was loud when Jeremy Lynn was in the game. There, people were cheering. I mean, people were packed in the stand. And Jeremy Lynn was even on all-star voting list kind of like the Caruso effect uh you know just because of his of his large following but same thing uh, I mean and Russ is I think the perfect component that I think Russ gets everybody hyped and it just gets loud when Russ is in the game and um and what that translates the other one is is commitment and and that's actually what part of my study is um on the sports analytics side is how committed a player is to the organization based off of their contract playing time um their statistical output um, and then the, the coaching style uh, affects their commitment and how they fit the system. And so um, measuring their commitment, does that affect their productivity? Does that affect um, uh, what they or productivity, but what they produce on the court and how hard they play? It's hard to measure effort, but I think commitment is just a start towards trying to measure that. That's, that's so. an interesting topic that you bring up, the commitment level. Um, and I, wanna, I, I have a point to make on that really quickly. But first, I want to talk about the, the crowd noise one. You know, I, I've, I've definitely mentioned this before, and I've never had you know, a true stat or potential stat to back up that idea. But you know, I've long missed, you know, with the addition of Russ to this Rockets roster, I have long missed having a player on, on the team that, that we can cheer for that kind of I think there's something to be said for demoralizing the opponent on the court right and something is different when you know yeah it's great if you're scoring and you, you know you're getting open layups and whatnot but there's something to be said for when you can have a player that can take the ball and just jam it down the 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 basket the opposing the opposing team's basket and really you know an emphatic dunk or you know breakaway slam or whatever there's something to be said for that you know we rarely get a lot of that from James he's not you know really a showboaty kind of player you know and he rarely uh, elevates to to dunk you know immediately comes to mind is you know his dunk over Draymond Green 
green. You know, that, that was an iconic moment, you know, slamming the ball home over Draymond and, you know, completely posterizing him. I think that plays into, you know, some level of like the team chemistry and getting your fan base into it and just, you know, kind of demoralizing the opponent. So it's kind of cool to think that there's going to be eventually a stat that can kind of back that up the crowd noise aspect. And you're right with Russ that that makes perfect sense. Right. And that intensity level being measured, I mean, being able to have both the opposite sides of the spectrum, right? How loud the crowd gets at home to how quiet the crowd is at home when they're on the floor, on the floor and then opposite, how quiet they can make the crowd on an away game and, and how, how loud the crowd gets when they're on the floor. I think two different aspects um, of the whole, you know, they're going to boo him. The crowd's going to be riled up when he's on the court and how you can measure that. It's going to be interesting. I, I liked the initial proposals. Um, I actually consulted with a couple of, of different groups to, to how they could measure that. Um, but I think it, I think it would be a great aspect to a player's um, overall impact on the team. There's just so many variables that basketball analytics are getting into that they're barely trying to understand. Um, and that's why I think you're seeing things at a little bit more advanced at the MLB stage where you see trash can gate with the Houston Astros. I know we're all, we're all kind of, uh, a little salty about that and a little yeah. close to home. Um, but you know, it made a difference, uh, for them. You, you, you heard about, uh, Golden State's, uh, accusations of having, uh, speakers in, on. Uh, well, and I was, I was going to say pumped in crowd noise, but that that's it. Yeah. Pumped in crowd noise for, yeah, specifically pumped in crowd noise. Uh, when they're, when their uh, crowds weren't there yet, or when they, they wanted to bring that extra, that extra noise. So you've heard all of these things, obviously crowd noise is, and, and, um, home court, that's why they call it home court advantage, but that's why crowd noise is such a big thing for, for professional sports teams, because, um, it, it really, it really is a measurable effect. So I don't know. We'll also have to see how that, how that works out, but I'm excited. And then on that commitment front, you know, I think that's something that people talk about all the time too. You talk about like a contract year for a player, right? You know, they, they have that desire to go out there and play their best season. So maybe they're making, you know, taking steps towards their game or approaches towards their game that they haven't in the previous two, three, four years of their contract, because they know that they need to play really well that season to, to have a payday the upcoming summer. And so that's, I'm sure that's something that you're, that you are looking at as you're kind of uh, diving into that commitment rabbit hole, right? It, it, uh, it's, it's not a unknown factor, right? The first year that you sign a lucrative contract in the NBA, you play a very productive and high efficient year. The contract year is a very high and efficient year and it's just like a circle. It just keeps going. But those middle years where you're committed, but your team, it depends where your team is at, um, and getting a gauge for what that commitment level is, that could apply what kind of weight you put on what your your predictive models may be on what your roster may be producing. And so and so having having the access to have those weights and being able to add that on there for those commitment levels, that's a big deal. For teams that maybe are like the Rockets where it's very ball dominant at the guard level and big men wouldn't be happy, then maybe they, you know, that, that might be part of their equation already that they said, well, let's just not have any big men and everybody's happy. And so, you know, we're all, we're getting full production. I could see that because from my early indications from my, from my own studies, that, that tends to be high. Um, and, and so uh, I'll be launching my, my, uh, my own research soon at the end of the summer towards the fall. And, and uh, you can catch that on, on, on any platform for me. But uh, on the side note, from, from ones that are, are currently being, being researched, that commitment level, the personal, uh, you know, the personal effects, the human metrics, um, those, are, those are just things we have not uh, explored into very much when it comes to sports analytics. And that's a big deal. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing where you take that conversation and what kind of uh, other evidence you find either for or against it. But, you know, Ernest, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. Go ahead and uh, let us know where we can find your stuff at. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can you can find myself, Ernest Silva, at the Sport Gene on Twitter, the Sport Gene on on Facebook, really any social platform. You just put in the Sport Gene, you'll find myself and a great group of sports scientists that we just kind of dissect every league. We focus mainly on the big three professional leagues with MLB, NFL, and NBA. Um, but we have podcasts come on all the time. Networks come on all the time to do some trivia segments, give listeners a chance to win some free gift cards. And, and really just have some fun. Great group of guys um, on Intel Lab Podcast. Follow us and subscribe today. All right. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to some more. Yeah, and I look forward to joining you on Into the Lab this Thursday evening. So that's going to be super duper fun. But as always, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.